of your church Bibles uh, as we continue uh, looking through uh, the wisdom of, of King Solomon. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I'll be re- beginning in verse 1 and, and we'll read through the, the whole chapter. It's a short chapter, 16 verses. This is God's word. Again, I saw all the oppression, all the oppressions that are under, done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that, that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool holds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and is striving after wind. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forevermore. Uh, Even just a a few years ago, if you uh, watched a film or or watched a show on television, uh, you might have, well, well, you might notice it now, but more so, but, but everyone looked absolutely perfect, didn't they? Yeah, the, the reason for that is because the, the image coming through the, the television screen on, the, on old technology was, was obscured almost imperceptibly. So a bit of makeup would, would uh, come through our televisions as uh, uh, absolute perfection. Now in the last few years, you may have started to notice uh, minor blemishes on, on the actors, on, on the shows that you watch on television, and, and they couldn't be covered with makeup. And the reason for that is because uh, as films have, have increasingly become digital uh, and high definition, uh, the, the, the clarity begins to, to bring out the flaws that were, that were there all along. And there's nothing really wrong with those, those flaws. I mean, we all, we all have them. But it's sometimes surprising when you watch an old film, one that you've seen a uh, hundred times, and you start to go, well, I've never noticed that before. That, that actor looks a little rough. Over the last few weeks in, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, uh, the, the preacher, as he often refers to himself, uh, has been bringing our world into, into higher definition. 
And the flaws we see in it really can't be unseen. We've tried obscuring them with things like, like riches or, or even hard work. And yet the, the, the problems and the brokenness are there. And once we, once we see them, we can't help but, but recognize them. This evening, the, the preacher is continuing a, a theme that he ended with last week. And he focuses us in on, on, on this, this issue of, of oppression. But he, he brings out sort of a, a surprising side to it, doesn't he? He, he ties it directly to our, our envy, our desire for, for stuff, for worldly things. And what he does is he, he zooms in here on, on the, the impact of the, the relentless seeking out of worldly material possessions and the inevitable impact that it will have not only, not only on ourselves, but on, on a, the community of people that we're a part of. And even in some cases, communities far from us. And he gives us this, his, his thesis in the first three verses, doesn't he? Where he tells us what, that, that wherever there is the, the drive for material gain, that's going to be the place where you'll find the, the brokenness and the tears of oppression and disparity. You're going to see the, the struggle between, between those who have power and those, those who don't. And he says there's no one to comfort those. Who, who are powerless. And it's really shocking the way he describes it, isn't it, in verses 2 and 3. Look, look back there. He says, And I, I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. It's, he says it's better to be dead than alive, but even, even better than that. Even better than being, uh, uh, being alive and a part of the, the oppression of this world is to have never been born at all. To, to never have seen the, the world of, of sin and brokenness that we inhabit. We may, we may struggle to feel that in our Western world. You know, most, of us, most of us think that, that, that life is, is pretty good. Yeah, we have our issues and our problems, but it's nothing that we can't, we can't overcome with a, with a bit of therapy or or a nice holiday. But I think what the, the preacher is saying here, and what he, he wants us to grasp, is that we might not feel this problem, but that's because we're at the top of the food chain. Whether we see it or not, whether we intend, whether we intend it or not, we're actually most likely part of the problem because of our, our desire for, for things. And the t- preacher takes, on, uh, 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 takes us on a rather bleak journey this evening. Uh, because it's a, a journey into our own hearts. And he causes us to, to open our eyes and, and he lays bare for us what it looks like when we, when we fail to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And there's, there's three things for us to see this evening here. First, we see the, the heart of oppression. Secondly, we see the, the perils of oppression. And third, we see the politics of oppression. So firstly, let's look at the heart of oppression. I uh, I find it remarkable just how few words it takes for, for the, the preacher to, to get to the very heart of the matter. I thought everyone in the Bible was a Presbyterian, but based solely on the, the brevity of, of the message of the, the preacher here tonight, uh, I'm not so sure that's true. But, but three little verses uh, that take us to the, the center of the issue, the, the heart of oppression. What's the driving factor behind the oppression that we see in our world? He says, he says it's envy. That is the desire for, for things. We, we look at our neighbor and we, we see something and we, we want that. 
And so we have to go out and, and find a way to get it. And this shouldn't surprise us at all, actually. When you think back to, to the fall, why did Eve first take the fruit? She, she saw that the fruit was, was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eye, that it was to be desired to make one wise. Eve, Eve envied the knowledge and wisdom of God. She didn't want to have anything withheld from her. And so she, she took this fruit and it, and it broke the world. And it broke our hearts. The hearts of men have reflected this envy ever since. And, and what, the, the, what Solomon wants us to see this evening is the devastating impact that that's had. And in America, we call this uh, keeping up with the Joneses. You know, the, the Joneses are, are the, the likely name of the people that live next door to you. you know, your neighbor pulls up in a new car and suddenly you can't get by with the old one that you've had for years. You just need to get a new one. Here in London, maybe you suddenly find yourself praying for the EULAs to get extended out to you, so you have to get a new, nicer, better car, right? That's not, yeah, maybe not. But, but you, 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 get, you, know, you, you get the idea, right? You get on, uh, if you're a bit older like me, you get on Facebook. Or if you're young, maybe you get on, on Instagram, and you see your friend's new kitchen that they've just installed. And suddenly your, your kitchen looks positively dated, doesn't it? How do we keep up with all the things we want? How do we maintain our status? Well, we have to work harder. We have to make more money. Sometimes maybe we think that, that going into debt is the answer. But no, or at least I hope we know that, that we have to pay that money back at some point, plus interest. But inevitably, when we aim to, to raise ourselves above our neighbors, we have to do so on the backs of the neighbors beneath us. Now stop a moment and remember how Jesus defines our neighbor. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, he defines our neighbors as anyone who's in need. In that parable, one, the one in need had been set upon by the ones that were envious. Robbers, they, they, they beat him <laughs> to death and they, they took what he had. And the one who was a neighbor to that man was the, the outcast who, who stopped to aid him in his moment of need. It appears to be extreme what, what the preacher is saying here tonight, but uh, even Pro, Ian Proven explains that what the, the preacher is getting at here best when he says a, a life of striving is fundamentally anti-neighbor. And we often obscure that, don't we? We don't want to bring that into, into higher definition. But this is why the, the preacher begins tonight in verses 1 through 3 with this, this stark picture of of what happens when we pursue material things. For many in our world, the only relief that they get from their labor is death. And we see this, this oppression in, in small ways that, that, again, we often lose the details of. For example, where do all of our, our cheap clothes come from? Well, they come from sweatshops in far-off places that we can easily forget about and ignore. We sometimes can, can feel the, the oppression closer to home, can't we? You know, how many late nights have you had to work on a, on a project to keep your boss happy? How many late nights have you made your employees work to keep you happy? Was that, was that selfish? Or did it serve some, some deeper, greater purpose other than just getting paid? You know, we, we face oppression all the time, sometimes in small ways that we, we don't even realize. And often we're, we're the cause of that. 
And Harry Potter, I know, I know I talk about Harry Potter quite a lot, but the kids like it. Secretly, the rest of you do too, but you can pretend like you don't. Uh, but, but in Harry Potter, the, the first time he walks into the Ministry of Magic, and the, the Ministry of Magic is this, this government building. It's the, the, the people who keep the wizarding world uh, organized. And he, he walks into this, this, uh, this ministry building, this government building, uh, and in the middle of, of this kind of a welcome area, lobby area, is this massive fountain. Uh, and in the middle of the fountain is a, is a statue, and, and the statue shows uh, wizards and, and magical creatures and, and non-magical creatures all uh, standing together smiling. And that's, that's the ideal. That was the, 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 the whole uh, purpose of the Ministry of Magic, was to create this, this perfect harmony between all the different groups of people. But later in the series, the, the Ministry of Magic gets taken over by the baddies. And, and the, the bad guys wanted to, to, to be superior. They wanted to, to climb the ladder. They wanted to get to the top. And as they, as they, they take over the ministry, they, they change the statue to a group of wizards who are, are standing proudly. And, and underneath them are all the, the non-magical people, people like you and me, the muggles. And the engraving on the statue says, magic is might. And that's actually a fair representation of the world that we live in. We have a statue made with us standing on, on the backs of, of the less powerful or, or the impoverished. And, we, and it would say, money is might. We argue that we, we have what we have because we work hard. And that's, that's not entirely unfair. Many of you work very, very hard. But what Solomon says is, is there's a food chain. And often in the Western world, we just happen to be on top of it. And what he wants us to do is to, to, to stop obscuring that and to look at our world in, in HD. And you may begin to be surprised at the blemishes that appear. Now, the, the preacher takes a moment here and he, he tips his hat, doesn't he, to the, the opposite extreme. For a very brief moment in verse 5, and we should, we should take note of this. He says that the fool or the lazy person, the one who just can't bring themselves to get a job, who just sits all day and, and uh, does nothing. He says eventually they're left with nothing. All they have is to, to eat their own flesh, as he puts it. In other words, you know, the, the fool is the one who, who wants more, but he's unwilling to do anything, any, any work to get it. They're left with nothing, and they, they can't figure out why. And we're, we're meant to see that, that toil is not the answer. But the opposite extreme also isn't the answer. Laziness is not the answer. And it feels like the preacher loses the flow between these verses, but it's, it's actually an important point that he wants us to get. And he underlines it in, in verse 6. What's the answer? The answer is to find contentment. To be content with what we have. To do good, honest labor and to, to take what we receive from, from that and be satisfied. See, the preacher is, is warning us that, that we abandon contentment at our peril. And that there are serious personal consequences, as well as communal consequences, for doing so. When you think further back into the Old Testament, you, you can look at, at the nation that Solomon ruled, Israel. And when you go uh, all the way back, this was the people that, that God had brought out of slavery in <coughs> Egypt. They had been on the, the wrong end of the food chain. They had suffered uh, oppression in, in the worst possible way. And when God brought them out, he, he delivered them 
to them the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And, and the summary of that law was, was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. And in the Old Testament civil law, we have uh, the, this, this picture of what that was meant to look like. God offered them uh, rules for how to organize their nation and their customs that were meant to deliver the, the principles of how to love one another well. And part of this was that in ancient Israel, wealth wasn't something that could be accumulated, at least not on a permanent basis. Money wasn't to be lent out for interest. You were meant to, to lend out your money to, to someone who was in need. There was a year of jubilee where, where any land that was purchased would be, would be returned to the original tribe of ownership. You see, the intention of the law was to remind the people of Israel that everything that they had had been given to them by God. And it ultimately belonged to God. And if we believe that, that God is good and that God is the one who provides for us, then, then there was no reason to accumulate more than was necessary. God could provide for them as they had need. We see this idea most clearly, perhaps, before they even entered the promised land. And the manna, this bread from heaven that, that appeared in the morning like, like the dew on the ground. And each day, God, God said the manna would be there and to, to go out and to, to gather it. And if they collected more than they needed for just, just a day, unless the next day was the Sabbath, then the, the, manna that they, the extra manna they had left over would turn maggoty. See, they didn't need to accumulate, and they couldn't accumulate. God called them to be dependent upon him and to be satisfied with the, the, the provision that he made for them. And there's real beauty in that, isn't there? Knowing personally a God who, who provides for his people, that we can be content with, with what he gives us, whether it's, it's little or much, that we can carry what he gives us in an open hand, not, not worried about someone coming along who, who has a greater need and, and taking it from us because it's not our own. That's what the preacher's telling us here. There's a beauty in the, the quietness of a, of a single handful. We abandon contentment at our peril. That's actually what we see in our second point this evening. What, what happens when we abandon contentment? Well, we, we end up in the perils of oppression. And the preacher brings us to, to uh, a natural extreme of our oppressive toil, doesn't he? When we abandon contentment, when we enter into this, this anti-community idea of, of, of chasing the material, we inevitably end up lonely. Verse 7 and 8 really captures this. The person pursuing material things has only their toil. They have no one to pass it on to. They, they don't even have time to stop and ask, who's, who's going to get this? They're too busy. They're too focused. They're too driven by earthly things. They're, they're isolated and alone. They're like C. Montgomery Burns in The Simpsons. You know, he has his nuclear power plant. He has his millions in cash. He has a mansion and a personal assistant. But he has no one to pass it on to. You know, he, he longs for an heir, and he, he ends up with, with just Bart Simpson, who eventually leaves him, because he just can't stand the old man. You know, we may think this, this sounds like a, a rather silly extreme, but if we think about our own world for a moment, I, I want to argue for the preacher here and suggest that we've, we've obscured these truths. We hide from them, and, and now we're being forced to see our world in, in HD. 
with all the blemishes. Yeah, we, we see this actually all the time in our world, I think. Uh, in the last 20 years or so, if you, uh, if you watch enough television, I'm, I'm using a lot of television examples, so obviously I do watch enough television. Um, but you, would, you, you start to see this, this, these plot lines evolve of the, the professional woman who has it all. And, and she's pursuing the, the top and she'll, she'll overcome uh, anyone who stands in her way. But then you, you end up with this, this plot line uh, almost inevitably where, where she stops and, and realizes that, that, her, uh, that, that she wants to have a child. And she has no, no husband or partner, but she, she wants to have a child. She wants someone to, to pass all of her wisdom and all of her things onto. And so what is, what's the answer? Well, they, they suggest that the answer is just simply you, you just go to the sperm bank. This gets presented to us as, as something normal, and, and in fact, that's, that's the whole point of it, to, to normalize this idea that, that actually we, we can have it all. And when you, when you need someone else in your life, there's a simple, there's a simple fix for that. But what it does is it, it obscures the deeper truth that whether you're a man or a woman, uh, we, we, we all suffer with that actually it's, it's incredibly lonely to pursue stuff, to pursue the material world, to place that as our God is ultimately destructive. When we pour our lives into career without looking to our neighbor or without looking to the God who, who created us, to look to him for our daily bread, then we'll inevitably arrive at the place of loneliness. And we humans, we're not created to be loners. But what the, the preacher says to us, what Solomon says is that if left to our own pursuits, we find ourselves not only oppressing others, but also selfishly wrapped up in me. And we lose all community and we end up oppressing ourselves. And he gives these, these uh, devastating picture of, of, of what that looks like in 9 through 11. He says two together can do more than just, just one, right? If one falls, uh, the other can, can pick them up. But if one's on their own, then they have to find their own way to, to get up. You know, you go out into to, to a desert place or someplace to, to work and you, you fall and twist your ankle or break your leg. If you're all by yourself, you've got you've to crawl out of there, don't you? The second person can help. You know, if you're, you're out somewhere on a, on a cold night and you lie there all by yourself, there's, there's very little warmth. But if you have a second, they can, they can help you. And uh, when a stronger person comes along like, like, and, and wants to take what you have, it's very hard to fight them off. But, but two can stand up and fight. Again, uh, Ian Proven uh, says, says this, the, the solitary traveler may get to the end of the journey faster, and indeed he may gain riches along the way as he leaves the weak and the slow behind him and is not required to share what he finds. However, he will also know pits out of which he must dig himself, unrelentingly cold nights, and lonely battles. You see, the truth is we, we know this, don't we? And we feel this in the 21st century West London. We're surrounded by, by stuff, by wonderful things. We're surrounded by home extensions, holidays abroad, <coughs> you know, all, the, all the nice things we need to, to amuse ourselves with. How much, how much loneliness do we see around us? How much do we experience in the day-to-day? -day? I, was, I was watching the BBC News this week, 
uh, talking about the, the teacher strike. I think it was Tuesday night, and uh, they were interviewing parents of, of kids who were going to be out of school the next day. Uh, and the, the entire piece was, was parent after parent saying they didn't have anybody to, to watch their kid the next day because school wasn't open. And that seems like, like you know, uh, that, that seems like we, we, we hear that and go, well, that, that was my issue too. That was, that was everyone's issue on, on a strike day. But at the same time, wouldn't a, wouldn't a proper community be able to, to look after one another's kids? Wouldn't neighbors be able to, to step in and help if someone needed to work? But instead, we, we put ourselves on these islands, haven't we? The island of me. And we, we leave ourselves out in the cold and in the pit or are open to the lonely battles. And see, that's the peril of individualism. That's the peril of trying to rise to the top. Now, third and lastly this evening, we see the politics of oppression. And this one will be very short. But the preacher lastly brings us to this, to this king, doesn't he? And the king's a really compelling person because uh, he's probably the clearest example of someone who, who benefits from the labor of others, Right? This is the guy who's reached the top. He's achieved it. He can tax people at his will, and he can enjoy the fruits of other people's labor. But Solomon himself was, was king, and he, he presents us with this, this scenario, and it's, it's a bit of a mystery whether this was a, a, a real thing or, or just a for instance, but he, he presents us with this, the, the, the essence of, of modern politics here, doesn't he? Verse 13, he says, Better was a poor and wise youth than old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor, born poor. So the narrative is, is, it's the modern political dream, isn't it? There's this old king who, who doesn't listen to anyone an, anymore. Uh, he does whatever he wants. He, he takes what he wants, and he, he, he doesn't care if his, what, what his advisors have to tell him. Uh, he doesn't care what the, the, the opinion polls say. And eventually this, this old king is overthrown and replaced by the young upstart. This guy, he's, he's young, he's handsome, and he's born into poverty. So he's not like the, the corrupt old rich guy. He's a proper man of the people, this guy. Surely he can, he can bring hope and change, right? He'll make Israel great again. He'll get Brexit done. He'll, he'll level up the country. You see what I mean, right? You know, in the ancient world, this, this was probably a coup, but in, in our modern world, this is just an election cycle. Everyone loves the young upstart because he delivers them from the oppressor. But where does, where does the young upstart end? Verse 16, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. And then listen to this, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Where does the hope and the change candidate end up? Right where the, the old codger no one liked ended up. The, the oppression of our world uh, begins with individuals, but, but it, it bleeds into our, our systems, doesn't it? And it leaves us, it, it leaves us uh, lonely and broken. And in these systems that, that can't solve that, the, the pol- political systems can't solve it. Because the, the calling of our creator God to love one another is, is far more complex than any political system that, that we can come up with. 
And so what's, what's the answer? You have the, if the, the young king and the old king can't, can't sort it, if we can't find it and figure it out for ourselves to, how to, to balance our lives, if we can't find uh, sufficiency in, in, in uh, the things that are given us, what's the answer? Well, the answer is found in the king who reversed the story. And instead of being born into poverty at the bottom, he, he was born into the glories of the heavenly realms. And he, he made himself low. He entered into our poverty. And he walked through our oppression and our loneliness and our brokenness. He suffered the loneliness of the cross and, and the, the, the cold pit of death. And he called us back to dependence upon our God who created us. He taught us to pray to God for our daily bread. And he reminded us that, that God knows our needs just as he knows the needs of the, the little sparrow and provides for that sparrow. When we trust this king, when we trust Christ, then more and more we see the, the security of being found in, in his kingdom. And we lay aside all the, the things of this world in order that we might please him by, by loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor even as we love ourselves. Let's pray.